Well, with those uh, uh, words, again, thank you for the invitation. I want to read uh, from the New Covenant Scriptures, the 8th chapter of Romans, one of my favorite chapters, one of my favorite books, and certainly one of my favorite chapters. And I want to begin the reading with verse 31, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And so I want you to remind you that uh, this is indeed the word of the living God. Be careful how you hear. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered, were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray just momentarily. Again, Lord, we do come before you and we acknowledge that uh, apart from your spirit, we will not hear, we will not understand but we thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to open the eyes that are blind, to release the prisoner from the dungeon and from the prison those who dwell in darkness. And so we pray now that you will indeed come and, uh, and use this word, that very word which brought worlds and the universe into existence, uh, that word of the living God would come and, and give life to us. We pray, Lord, that you give us hearing ears, that you keep us from distraction, and that you will enable me uh, to accurately and faithfully proclaim your word. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed take from us all the, the things that burden our hearts, and that you would exalt your Son, and that we might see your face in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions. These are great questions that the Apostle Paul asks. And particularly because questions require us to engage, to think, and to, to answer them. There's a reason why the catechisms were developed. Because it's a good way to teach the whole counsel of God. The question is asked, the answer is given, but you actually have to think about it. And as you go through life... Uh, the Lord uses those things to bring the answers to mind again. In a courtroom, a good attorney will ask questions to elicit and to build a case in order to convince the jury, asking the questions and looking for the answer. And particularly 
questions come to us as they did to the sons of Korah in the 44th Psalm. The celebration of God's redeeming work of planting them in the land and the greatness of God in revealing himself in all of those ways and yet the sons of Korah were going through a season where somehow that reality didn't match up with their experience. And it wasn't as if the sons of Korah had rejected the Lord. Now, they aren't saying they're sinless, but they said, Lord, we're, we're seeking to be faithful to you, and yet your enemies have arisen, and you no longer go with our armies, and we're afflicted in every way. There were questions. Why? Why? Where are you? Where have you been? We've seen what you've done in the past, but where are you today? And so they were asking questions. And the Apostle Paul, in one sense, asks questions to answer those questions of the sons of Korah. We find the answers to all of our questions, of course, in the scriptures. And Paul, in this chapter, in the book of Romans, in the previous context, had reminded us that afflictions in life are not inconsistent with being in a state of blessedness. In fact, he tells us that when we encounter various trials, James tells us, we're to count it all joy. He tells us in the book of Romans that those, those trials are forming Christ in us. And he tells us in the 17th verse, with regard to our inheritance, if we're children, heirs also with God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He, he assumes that those who are faithful, who are sons of God, are going to endure hardships. Uh, by the way, I, I do want to just pause here as an aside and remind you, although I um, I can remember years ago reading, um, my mind's going to, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading through his, uh, his book on the, um, on the yeah, now I'm, now I'm even going to forget that, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, he, and I hate to disagree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who am I to disagree with him, but he was talking about the Beatitudes, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, and uh, he was saying, well, we can say that happy is the man, and uh, I just want to say, I think that's, I, I think if you understand it properly, that's correct, but the opposite of blessed is not sad. The opposite of blessed is cursed. And so you can, in a sense, be unhappy in the sense of, of where things are. Uh, we can be unhappy about the, the, the state of our, our culture right now and be blessed not happy about it, but I'm, I'm blessed. And, and so when, uh, when he talks about these things, about being, uh, being blessed, is, is not, it's not an impediment to our blessedness to suffer affliction. And in fact, in the context, Paul provides us with a number of encouragements for the endurance of affliction. It leads to glory. It's insignificant in comparison with future glory. Uh, it produces an awareness of incompleteness and a longing for consummation. The 
whole creation groans together until now, awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. And we also are groaning and, and waiting. You, you see, it's those afflictions that make us look ahead. When I was, uh, uh, one of the conversations that Bunny and I frequently have is, when I was younger, I didn't think much. I thought I had years and years and years. And, and as time goes on and uh, the aches and pains increase, and we realize that uh, the sand is running out of the hourglass rather rapidly, uh, heaven becomes more precious. And we find ourselves content. And I'll, I'll often say as we, as we awaken in the morning, uh, we'll look at each other, ah, the Lord's given us another day to spend together. All this and heaven too right? Well, those are the things that we face, and then God tells us that he governs everything. All things work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And there are many other things uh, as we look at Romans, uh, the, the, the fullness of the gospel that Paul has set forth, and he comes now uh, to this section that we'll look at this morning, questions, questions that may arise in the midst of of affliction. And I want to say that there are four of them we'll look at if we have time, but first of all, I want to look at what I call the challenge question. And that's the first one. It's kind of a summary. What then shall we say to these things? Well, what things? Well, everything that he's talked about in the previous seven and a half and more than half chapters. It's a summary question that we need to respond to with the truth that has been revealed. What shall we say to these things? And that question then drives us back to what things? What are the things that require a response? They demand an answer. They can't be ignored. They can't, excuse me, should not be forgotten. And the truths require a, a thoughtful response. So what is your response in the midst of the troubles of life or the disappointments or when it seems as if somehow God is not fulfilling his promise? What's your response when you're confronted with, do you think about the things that God has revealed in his word? What's your response? Paul is asking you, what shall we say, what shall you say to the glorious truths of the gospel? What will you say? You should be able to articulate your response to God in prayer, as the sons of Korah did. They expressed their concerns, but they also expressed their confidence. I don't quite understand what's happening here. I'm a little bit confused, but arise, O Lord, arise. My trust is still in you because of who you are and what you've done. You should be able to articulate the response to yourself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist talks to himself. That's not a sign of insanity, by the way. It's okay to talk. We need to talk to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of, of who God is and what he's done. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. And then he goes on and complains again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Well, that's kind of where we live, isn't it? But we articulate the truths of God's word. And then we, by the grace of God, articulate what we should say to these things to others as well. Why is it that you can endure that affliction? What's a reason 
for the hope that is within you. My hope is in God. And your answer will, in a sense, put your faith to the test. To When I say that, put the, your faith to the test, I'm talking about like refining gold or silver. Uh, you can put uh, iron pyrite, fool's gold, into a, into a melting pot and it'll just disappear. It's dross. But if you put gold with all the impurities in it into a fire, it will refine it and it will show what kind of faith it is, whether it's genuine or whether it's, it's artificial. Well, what do we say to these things? Ah, it doesn't matter. And that doesn't help me in this situation. Well, then your faith is not in the right place. And the question is designed, however, to encourage persevering faith. That's why the Apostle Paul asks the question. He drives you back to what is true. And then we have the comparative Question. What shall we say to these things in verse 31? And then in verse 31 again, if God is for us, who is against us? You see, everything that had preceded this was showing how God, in His infinite mercy and grace, chose us out of the world who were not only undeserving but maldeserving, poured out his love upon us and redeemed us from a lost world and he demonstrates that he's for us and he asks the question if God be for us who can be against us and of course that question immediately drives us to say okay who is this God that is for us and so we are to think about the one who is for you, and one of the things that uh, the Lord has um, placed upon my heart more recently <clears throat> that uh, I often fail to do is I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the greatness of God. And you see, I, I think a lot about the uh, the power of God's enemies. I think a lot about my sin. Um, but the greatness of God. And I think if you're going to answer this question, it's going to challenge your thoughts about God. Our, our problem is that we have too little thoughts about God and too great a thoughts about our troubles. I just think, I think one, of the, one of the greatest questions and answers in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, apart from the first one, which is, what is the man's chief end, which answers a lot of questions, is the, is it the, uh, it's the question of what is God, is that the fourth? I um, can't remember which one it is in the Shorter Catechism, but what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I would just challenge you, if, you, if you're thinking small thoughts about God, I want you to take that Westminster question and answer, catechism question and answer, and think about it. it because it's a, I don't believe it's God-breathed, but I think it's a good summary of what is God-breathed. 
because what it tells us about the, is the incommunicable attributes of God, that which belongs to God himself, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And uh, I just, I, I shrink back. I, it's hard for me to meditate on God's infinity. I mean, it, it boggles my mind. It, unlimited power and ability. Unlimited. Everything that I experience has limitations. This created order is limited. And God is not limited by anything outside of himself. Eternality. That boggles my brain as well. What? No beginning? No end? Well, what was there before there was the universe? What was... But you see, as Calvin says, what we cannot understand, we must simply learn to adore. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, immutable. God doesn't change at all. Now, that's enough to spend some time meditating on and praying about. But here's the thing. Then it goes on and talks about his communicable attributes, the things that he shares with those of us who are created in his image. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, the difference is those first three incommunicable attributes are true of all the communicable attributes in God, but not in us. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He's infinite, eternal, and I'm not going to go through it, but you get the idea. There's a week's worth of prayer and thanksgiving in that simple question. And so we think about God being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, all-love. If that God is for you, who can be against you? And when you think about that, then you think about the relative insignificance of all opposition. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it's comparative because I can think of a lot of things and people and institutions and situations that can be against me, right? And, and you can too. So he's not saying, oh, listen, uh, you, you face no opposition in the world at all. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, compared to the greatness and power and grace of God, any opposition is totally insignificant. Not that you face no opposition, it's that there's no opposition that can succeed in preventing God's purpose for you. When Peter had sinned against the Lord in denying him three times, having boasted in his fidelity and his faithfulness, Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. That should have caused Peter to tremble. Satan is a great enemy. But Jesus said, but I have prayed for you.
and we know the story. But I can think about the things that are against us, and yet they're under God's control. The world order is under God's control. You may think that everything's out of control, and I, you know, the old, uh, that old cliche uh, from, uh, from Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, there's no intelligent life down here. That's kind of where I find myself. I'd say, you know, it really can't get any crazier than it is. And to think that, um, to think that people are actually devoted to these absurdities, it, I mean, it boggles my brain. And yet, the Word of God tells us the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And we think about the history of Israel and how God raised up Assyria and Babylon to chastise the people of God. Wicked, wicked orders, the uh, severe cruelty, and, and I'm certain the people of that day thought everything's out of control, just like we think everything's out of control. Uh, and yet God has made them. And in his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable wisdom is accomplishing his purpose. I'm certain that uh, Satan and those who, um, who were his servants at the crucifixion of Christ were dancing and happy and, oh, we've done it now. God is a defeat. No, no. All Satan can do in this world is accomplish the purpose of God. Your, own, your sin nature is something that is against you, but it's being subdued by God's spirit. The devil is defeated enemy. And in this very book, in the 16th chapter, the last chapter, the Apostle Paul says, yeah, you, you Roman believers, you're facing a lot of troubles, but the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet not many days hence. It seemed like it was impossible. Where is the great Roman Empire today? Where was it 300 years later? It was subdued under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The curse of the law has been crucified, Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The, the curse of the law, the law was against us before Christ. It was the indictment of our sin that required death, and that's been taken out of Death is a great enemy. Death is against us. But death has been swallowed up in victory. He can only usher you into his nearer presence. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm kind of caught between two. You know, I'd really like to die and go to be in the Lord's presence. But kind of necessary for me to be here with you. But I'd rather be with the Lord. But being convinced that I'm necessary here, I'll, I'll go on and be happy here, too. You, you see, death is no longer, no longer, what's the word that I want? It's not the great enemy. It's become a servant. I mean, it is still an enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But it's not against you. It can only usher you into life eternal. Think about the evidence that God has taken your part. He tells us, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
if he's given us his only son, will he withhold any good thing? You're suffering affliction. You're under the pile. And you don't think, you think that God's going to just leave you to twist in the wind? That he won't supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ? He gave his son to you and for you. He gave the greater. He's not going to withhold the lesser. He poured out the full measure of his wrath on Jesus. He, Jesus drank that cup to the dregs, not holding anything back, but intentionally delivering him up for you. And Jesus bore all the sins of all his people for all time. The infinite wrath of God was poured out upon him. Why? He was forsaken that you might never be forsaken. And he's not going to forsake you. I may have told you this before, but my daughter related, oldest daughter related something to me that she heard in a sermon in her congregation down in Knoxville. And and I thought it was striking. I thought about it. For the believer, the most of hell you will ever experience is in this life. The worst that you will ever experience is in this life. For the unbeliever, the most of heaven you'll ever enjoy is this life. That's sobering, isn't it? Jesus has borne it. He gave his son for, his, for our salvation. And Jesus himself so loved us that he willingly, he willingly took that upon himself to redeem you. That's the demonstration of God's love for you. And his love was bestowed when you were unlovely, as he tells us. God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more shall we be saved through his life? And this love has its, its objective, your complete salvation. But before we go on to the third, and I know I'm... <clears throat> I want to remind you that if, and that is true, if God is for you, there is comparatively no one and nothing that can be against you. Brothers and sisters, and if there's anyone here apart from Christ, think about the converse. If God is against you, then it doesn't matter who's for you. Because God is infinite, not only in his grace and mercy, but he's infinite in his justice as well. There's no one else. Your pastor prayed this morning, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The legal questions, and there are two of them in 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Two questions. Who can bring an accusation that will secure a guilty verdict at the throne of God? Well, again, we need to understand exactly what is being said here. It isn't as if there are absolutely no accusations that can be brought 
against us because the Lord Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was accused of all manner of things falsely. And so there are many accusers and accusations. We are surrounded by them. If you think of ourselves uh, apart from our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, our conscience accuses you, us, I should say. Uh, Offended men can accuse us. Satan can accuse us. He is the accuser of the brethren, the word of God tells us. He's the accuser of the brethren. We see that in in Job as Satan stands before God and accuses Job and he continues to accuse us. And truth be told, God can accuse us too, can't he? We've broken his law. But again, this isn't talking about mere words of accusation The idea here is, who can accuse you so as to secure a guilty verdict? The answer is no one. And there are two reasons, one reason for that he gives, that God the Father, as the judge, has rendered his verdict already. The trial has already taken place at Calvary, and God has declared you righteous for the sake of Christ. You're forgiven, pardoned, washed in his blood, clothed in his righteousness, and counted as righteous for Jesus' sake. God is speaking about his elect, his chosen. Notice he says here, who can bring a charge against God's chosen for salvation when the God who chose them is the judge who will not accuse them because the penalty has been paid in full? Now you remember that when your conscience accuses you. You remember that. When you are convicted by your own sin, remember that God is the judge. Indeed, will convict us of our sin, but as we flee to Christ, he removes that sin and its guilt as far as the east is from the west and buries it in the deepest part of the sea, and he remembers it no more. Hallelujah. And then he asks the question, who is the one who condemns? Okay, you have the accusation, we have the trial, we have the evidence presented, and now it's time for the final verdict, and who is the one who will sit and rule at the last judgment? All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. He is the judge who will judge men on the last day. And this judge is the one who gave himself that you might not be condemned. He bore the condemnation that you wouldn't have to. Do you see why he's he's asking these questions and and causing us to to think about it? Who is the one who condemns? The only one who condemns us is Jesus Christ, and he gave himself that we might not be condemned along with the world. There's no one. Christ has paid the full penalty. Christ's resurrection demonstrates God's satisfaction with the payment. And Christ is interceding for us. John marvels at this in his first letter, the second chapter. These things have I written unto you that you might not sin, but if any man sins, we have an advocate, we have an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In other words, the judge is the one who is pleading your case for you. And he said, well, that's not right. The judge shouldn't be the 
Well, sorry, but that's the way God has ordained it. The judge is your advocate. So who is there to condemn you if you're in Christ? And then the relationship question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to the slaughter. A quote, by the way, from Psalm 44, which we read. So the Apostle Paul considers all of these things. He asks these questions and He says, in light of all of these things that precede, who can separate us from the love of God? I am very grateful for the Lord's sustaining grace, and I'm grateful for godly marriages. I'm grateful for my wife of almost 53 years, and I'm grateful to God that he has um, enabled us uh, to fulfill our, our vows. For better, for worse, in sickness, in health, in joy, and in sorrow, in plenty, and in want. You see, the circumstances don't matter because we have vowed before God to love each other as Christ loved the church. And he's given us that grace, but those vows in our human marriages are just a pale reflection of God's vows and of Christ the groom's vows to his church, the bride. In joy and in sorrow, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the afflictions of life brings. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will be faithful. He will be faithful unto and through death and into eternity. And that should cause your hearts to rejoice no matter what you're facing. Who is there who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It addresses the manifold afflictions that are faced by believers. They're the general pressures of life both from within and without, tribulation, distress, trouble. And we're all familiar with those things. I don't know about you, but I've spent sleepless nights wondering what was going to happen. There are all those troubles that come from without. There are particular sources of uh, pressure, persecution, famine, poverty, danger, violence. Those are all things that are very real. All the afflictions of life, the Apostle Paul says, can any of these things or any of these people separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And the answer, of course, to this question emphasized God's unfailing love. Nothing, nothing will be able to turn God's love away from you. If you are in Christ Jesus There is nothing. John Brown, it's a long quote, forgive me, but but pay attention because I found it very helpful. He says this, The only way in which the sufferings of the present time 
may seem to come between the Christian and the love of God in Christ is when he falls before them as a temptation or, in unbelief, sinks under them. Then a cloud comes between him and the light of his father's countenance. But the cloud is not the affliction, but the sin, and it is a merciful arrangement that it is so. The want of comfort tells him something is wrong. He has not far to seek for the cause, and when it is removed, he sees clearly that God rests in his love, and the sufferings of the present time are perfectly powerless to separate from that love those or the object of it. Yeah, sometimes, by the way, sometimes it's not sin. But he's saying when sin does bring a cloud, and it does, it brings us to the place. There have been, uh, there have been seasons in my life where God seems so distant, and it was because of my own stubbornness and sin, and it was that unease of, the, of, a, of a consideration that God was distant, but he wasn't distant as a loving father, he was drawing me back to himself and fleeing to him. The light of his countenance was spread upon me again. And as we stated at the very beginning, the afflictions of life are perfectly consistent with God's saving favor. And he concludes with these words. Yes, there are troubles in life. But listen to these words. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, now that's a long list, and we're not going to look at all of them. We don't have to. You can do that later on this afternoon. I'll just say one thing. Nor any other created thing. All right. What is there that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus except God himself, and the Apostle Paul has said, and God's not going to leave you or forsake. No other created thing means there's nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in the midst of the troubles of life, whether they be the troubles of your heart or the troubles around you, things over which you have no control, Whenever you're facing these troubles and you're saying, God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? Ask the questions. Ask these questions. What shall we say to the gospel? What shall we say? If God is for me, who can be against me? Who is there who is able to accuse me in such a way as to... As to to succeed in before the throne of God. Who is there who can condemn me? And who or what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And God will strengthen your hearts to endure every affliction. He will bring you to glory 
And he will use those very afflictions to accomplish his purpose for you for time and eternity. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable and incomprehensible gift in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that uh, your word, which is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, will convince us that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I am convinced. I have come to be convinced in the past, and I remain convinced that there is nothing that is able to separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. Enable us then to stand in these things. And when we encounter, and we encounter the, the doubts as the sons of Korah did, we pray that we not flee from you, but flee to you and come to understand your infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love for your people in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.